The Vampire. A supernatural being that has taken hold of our collective imaginations so strongly in recent years, from sparkly, pale-faced heartthrobs to terrifying predators that hunt us in our own society. But did you know that the modern vampire as we know it has a definitive literary beginning? Welcome to Horror Origins Episode 6, The Modern Vampire. Over the next 10 minutes or so, we're going to be taking a look at the story that turned a ghastly being of folklore into the seductive aristocrat that we know today. Here we go. Now, the creator was a particularly interesting individual and close personal friend, eh, maybe not so much of a friend, of Lord Byron, uh, named John Polidori. He was born in Soho in 1795 as the eldest son of an English mother and an Italian writer. He was raised in a household steeped in literature and was sent to, the, uh, sent to boarding school at the age of eight to the Catholic Ampleforth College. And college, although might be an overstatement because everything I've read indicates that it was really just a handful of students and a couple of dozen monks that composed the whole of this college. As a boy, Polidori was enamored with the idea of a life with the church and began to make plans to become a priest. But, uh, as often is the case in this poor guy's life, uh, his father had completely other plans for his son. And by the time that Polidori became 15, he was pulled by his father from the Catholic college and enrolled in medicine at the University of Edinburgh. But, like many who find themselves living hand-picked lives by their parents, uh, Polidori absolutely hated it. And, to be honest, I think I would have too. Medicine at this time revolved around something called antiphlogistics, which uh, sort of sounds like a dark age uh, practice. Uh, obviously not, but it, it involves ridding the body of toxic substances in order to achieve health. So things like bloodletting, vomiting, enemas, blistering, yikes, is what I say. Polidori seemed to hate the monotonous nature and routine of medical school, and was known to have become a reclusive loner. He was quoted as having to refer to his classmates as automatons. His father uh, continued, however, to press him, and he did eventually complete medical school and become a doctor. Sort of. In London, at that time, you could only practice as a doctor if you were the age of 26 or older. And Polidori, with his father riding him, completed medical school at the age of 20, leaving him with quite a gap in what to do with his professional life. It was then that his relationship with Lord Byron began, and he was offered a position as his personal physician. Now, from what I've read, it seems like Byron really didn't need a personal physician, but maybe it was a status symbol or something. And, uh, and Byron treated Polidori terribly. He was a real jerk, often ridiculing Polidori, talking down to him, being complete condescending ass. The way I, I've seen their relationship, it seemed very much that Byron wanted to play up his status. And by talking down to Polidori, this, you know, his physician, it only seemed to elevate him amongst his circles. Now, the context of the story that Polidori ended up writing remarkably comes from the same retreat that produced Frankenstein and the Shelleys. 
It was set in the year without a summer, uh, which I covered more extensively in the Mad Scientist episode. So if you haven't heard that, go ahead and dial back to that one. But suffice to say, Polidori was very much intellectually part of the upper crust of the literary society, a, a group that in their own little bubble, removed from the turmoil of the rest of the world, was able to produce, at least in this little retreat, several singularly great things. Frankenstein being one, this story being another. It uh, makes me think that if more people just sat down to be creative, the world would just bloom with all sorts of originality and awesome creations. But uh, enough of me wittering on. Let's get to the story that was written by Polidori on this fateful night. The story is called The Vampire, with a Y, if you're ever looking it up. Now, because the story so heavily involves a creature of real-life folklore... Palladori's story was originally prefaced by a brief explanation of that folklore and his thoughts about its origination. He was wrong in his assertions, falsely claiming that superstition that the superstition came from Arabia, then spread to Greece, and then to Eastern Europe. He uh, recounted the notorious Hungarian case of Arnold Paul, as reported in the London Journal of March 1732. But what I find most interesting here in this preface, is that he shows that he's aware of the feature uh, that a victim killed by a vampire becomes one. Now, this is really sort of a key characteristic of vampire, and one that is completely left out of the story. And it just leaves one to, leaves one to one's imagination trying to figure out why uh, such a feature as uh, prominent in the mythology of vampire was left out. But like I said none of the victims of the vampire in the story actually rise from the dead. But Palladori's uh, story uh, features a vampire character uh, named Lord Ruthven. I've also heard it pronounced Riven, but I've always pronounced it in my brain Ruthven, so I'm going to go with that. As you may have already assumed, he's the villain of the piece, often to have been inspired by Lord Byron himself in both his appearance and mannerisms an evil-minded, silver-tongued aristocrat that arrives to London and invites the young protagonist, a man named Aubrey, on a trip to Rome, not unlike the formative situation that Palladori found himself with Byron upon their first meeting and being whisked off on a, mass, on a, on a big trip, ultimately ending um, back in London. Aubrey, being a budding socialite and eager to experience the cultures and color of the greater world, accepts the vampire lord's offer, and accompanies him on his trip. Ruthven pr proves himself to be a vicious and cruel person that delights in ruining the lives and reputations of those around him. And Aubrey wants very quickly to distance himself from him. Ruthven seems to be seducing a mutual acquaintance in Rome, and Aubrey sees this as his chance to make an exit. He leaves his bizarre traveling companion and travels on his own to Greece, where he first hears of the superstitions about vampires. He falls in love while in Greece with a young woman who is shortly then killed by a vampire. And then shortly before uh, leaving Greece, Lord Ruthven returns and they begin their travels once again together. But then strangely and sort of abruptly in the story, they run into a roving band of bandits and surprisingly and I gotta say, it was kind of a twist. Lord Ruthven is killed by the bandits. In his dying moments, Ruthven turns to Aubrey 
and makes him promise that although he is dying, that he not announce his death back in London for at least a year and a day. Aubrey doesn't understand this request, but the man is dying, so he accepts and agrees to not announce his death. He returns to London, where he has trouble keeping his word about the death, but he, he does his best, best, but then lo and behold, Lord Ruthven arrives, not dead at all. Aubrey is beside himself and realizes that everyone that he's aware of that has come in contact with the Lord has ended up terribly, and his suspicions about what Lord Ruthven really is sort of come to the fore. He wants to shine a light on the fact that the Lord has seemingly come back from the dead, but he is bound by his word, and so remains silent. Then, to make matters worse, Lord Ruthven starts seducing Aubrey's sister, and between that fact and that he can't talk about his suspicions that the, the Lord is a monster, Aubrey, in true gothic horror fashion, has a nervous breakdown. Our protagonist recovers, sadly, on the day that the pact expires with Lord Ruthven, and coincidentally, the wedding day between the monster and his sister. Aubrey confesses all that, he, all that he knows about the monster and what has happened in his original travels, and people rush to stop the hideous union. Unfortunately, it's found that Lord Ruthven has disappeared, and Aubrey's poor sister has been the third victim and glutted the thirst of the vampire. Now, this story, um, while being... Remarkably, remarkable on its own, it feels really crappy that its fame and notoriety that it initially had wasn't at all because of the quality of the story itself, but rather because of its association with Lord Byron. It was originally published in the new monthly magazine, don't ask me what happened to the old or regular monthly magazine, in 1819, but it was attributed at that time to Lord Byron, not Palidori, and it was a mistake and I'm using that in air quotes, that the publisher did not initially recognize or want to correct because of the hot celebrity status that Byron had at the time. They were selling more of these things because of it. Byron, to his credit, after the fact, did write a letter confirming that the story was indeed Polidori's, and so nowadays we have no reason to question this, but it was a bit of a scandal at the time, and it sure felt pretty crappy to poor Palidori who had up until this point sort of been in the shadow of Lord Byron. The vampire story continues to be of interest to this day because of its proximity to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein also. But not just that, it, it does stand on its own as a little literary gem. It precedes the larger literary trend in fiction of combining gothic materials with details associated with everyday and ordinary life. And in a small way, it foreshadows the way other writers like the Brontes or Dickens, Eliot will incorporate gothic details into more realistic fiction later on. Now, the legacy of this story. Well, Dracula is, of course, the big one that has cemented the image of the vampire in our minds. But let's be honest here. There are so many incarnations of this monster over the years following the original story by Polidori that it would be folly for me to try to list any of them here or, or create a list of them here. On a personal level, my favorite incarnation of the vampire comes from the tabletop role-playing game Vampire the Masquerade, which sort of hit its peak in the early 90s. A gothic punk horror fusion of a game that really shaped for me in those formative years of my life 
how an ancient idea of folklore could be brought into the modern world and maintain its frightening aspects. Of course, little did I know at the time that the game I was playing in those early years owed a lot to Mr. Palladori for adding the key features that made the monster such an enduring and robust creation. I think, had it not been for this story and the added characteristics that it gave to the monster, the vampire, that it would have never become such a powerful creature of our imaginations. It would have remained simply a cultural boogeyman, like so many others, merely frightening those of true belief with the lore, and passed on by the rest of the world without so much of a second thought. So let us all appreciate this first in horror literature. If you enjoyed this podcast and learning about the strange works of fiction that have brought us to where we are today, I implore you to take a moment and write a review for the show. It'll help more people find out about it, and the more people we can get interested in this stuff, the better. And if you appreciate podcasts that are advertisement-free and want to say thanks or make a recommendation for the show, feel free to email me at author at matthewtansick.com or click on the contact button on matthewtansick.com. If you want to stay up to speed on this or any of my other creative projects, I am on Twitter. I tweet at TANZ444. Feel free to reach out. I'd love to hear from you. And until next time, thanks for joining me.